Hello, and welcome to Self-Sabotaging Sagas, hosted by me, your Elevation Guide, Jenea Barnes. Hello, world. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Self-Sabotaging Sagas. I am here with a woman of many, many, many identities. So I'm going to let her introduce herself and tell you a little bit about all of the things that she does. Take it away. I'm trying to decide where to start with that (laughs) invitation. First, I'll start by saying thank you so much for having me and for all who are listening. Hi. And um, I hope that what I have to share with you today will have some meaning and relevance for you. Uh, I'm going to, I think I'm going to dive right in the deep end here. Okay. So I'm going to start with my why. So that is, yeah. Okay. So when I was 15 years old, my father died suddenly of a stroke. And because, you know, the um, little children's book, Madeline, and to the tiger in the zoo, Madeline just said poo-poo, and so did I too many times to my dad. So I was grounded a lot. So when he died suddenly, and people didn't talk to their children the way they do now, and I'm glad that more do now, but back then, people didn't talk about their feelings all that much. And so... I walked around for years, actually, thinking that my father died of me until one day at the cemetery when I broke down with my mom and um, about how all my fault it was for being so fresh. They used to call it, she's fresh. And she said, no, honey, it wasn't you. It was work. Now, I started out in a clinical chemistry laboratory and went on to um, the USDA biological control lab and a cardiac catheter research lab. But there was always this, no surprise, pull to the people. So over decades, um, I became educated and experienced and interested deeply interested in helping, um, you know, any little boy or girl's mom or dad or anybody at all uh, learn how to manage their mind so they can manage their lives for happier, healthier, productive lives. So that's what I am so devoted to right now and have the pleasure to be able to actually operationalize that and watch people, you know, who come to me so depleted and leave with a smile. I live for that. So me too. Me too. I love being able to shift people's mind, people's perspective. I had a client yesterday that it was just one thing that I said and all of a sudden things just rolled into another perspective and she realized that she didn't have to fight against what she was fighting against because 
what it was really about was something so much bigger and so much more important that there was no need to fight anymore. So those moments are glorious, glorious. Yeah, because there's so much time and energy that's freed up when you can lay yeah. down your sword. So good for you. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. Mm -hmm. Laying down the sword. Oh, so yeah. talking, really dipping into identity. So we all have these ideas about who we think we are. I, in the, my life, I have been many things. I have been a delivery driver, a waitress, a bartender, a confidant, a advice giver, an artist, a photographer, a chemical engineer major, all kinds of things. And all of these things have at one time or another, I identified with them, a daughter, a friend, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And some of these identities come with ideas about how we're supposed to be mm. when we are operating from this place. And it doesn't always serve us. It's not always going to expand our possibilities. <laughs> One of the things that I think both you and I both do with our clients is expand people's possibilities. When you have more possibility, you are able to pivot, turn, shift, flow, and create more ease in your life, period. Couple so, of things there. Yeah. So I don't know if you know this, maybe you do. So in addition to being a, um, licensed psychotherapist and board certified executive career and life coach. I don't know if you know, tell me whether I've shared this with you before. I have been studying Advaita Vedanta pre-Hindu tradition and practicing for um, two plus decades. And what they would say to you about those roles you play is that you're none of those because we can't be that which we can observe. So if you're in the role of, give me one, doesn't matter which one, just give artist. me Artist. Artist. If you're in the role of artist, you can, ex you can actually observe yourself practicing your craft. And then who is doing the observing? It's yeah. not the artist because you're observing the artist. So who's doing the, the observing? So they would say, and this is under my belt and in my toolkit too, that um, we're part of something way bigger than you, the artist. On the other hand, they would grant us that we're all here to play a part and we have to play our part well. So it, it's like these two things hanging in the balance. On the one hand, there is no me. And on the other hand, there is a me who is going to try to do as well as she can at whatever it is 
that she's doing, whether it's an author or an artist or whatever. And then the second thing is that when you were talking about going exploring from who you are, you know that you were smack on great. So the book, Getting to Great, and the, ac the acronym G.R.E.A.T. Right. So, so the G is the grounding in the idea that it doesn't have to be like this, that all kinds of other things for a great life are possible. And then you touched on that we have to recognize our truer nature that is a little bit um, separate from beneath the roles we play. And then you mentioned that all kinds of things are possible. So that's the E in great is to go exploring. So yeah. we're up to E already. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you that don't know, this wonderful woman, author and woman of so many talents, put out a book recently and it's called Getting to Great. And it's an acronym, G-R-E-A-T. It's what she was speaking about. So we'll dip into little pieces of that. And of course, at the end, we'll let you know how to actually buy it because I've read it. It's great. <laughs> it's, so, it's so great for me to hear you espousing it because I didn't make that great up like out of nowhere. I was watching people over years yeah. getting from meh in their lives to really great lives and everything you said which captured the g the r the e and we'll get to the a and the t but everything you said is i just saw it just the same way you see it and i said i gotta put this in a bottle right so where's the bottle i usually have one. <laughs> oh my god where's the bottle you'll anyway. find it you'll find it actually the bottle is back there behind me too small. Anyway. So it's interesting. I love as we're talking about the witness and I've experienced this in a lot of my <clears throat> things in my journey. You know, I meditate. Most of you guys know I meditate daily. I've been yep. slipping on my two hours a day. I'm sliding into an hour and a half lately. I'm trying to get a lot of stuff done. <laughs> I don't know where you got the two hours from in the first place. I don't. Well, for me, it really comes down to there's this like magic point around 45 minutes where um, you just like the noise kind of stops a little bit and you get a little bit of that peace that you're really looking for. You really become the witness. You, you become that person above. You see all the things from that different perspective. For me, it happens around 45 minutes. And if you limited yourself to 30 twice a day, which is what the school recommends. Well, that's the transcendent TM. Do you think yeah. your mind would quit messing around for the first 30 minutes? If it knew it only had 30 minutes? Because it sounds- If it knew it had, well, for me, the other thing that happens, I've healed a lot of trauma stuff out of my body too. And this is the stuff that really happens around the hour and a half mark for me. So the longer I'm still, the longer I am in it, 
I get this another release. I get emo more emotions that pop, move up and out and through, and I get more. I'll get shaking sometimes, rapid eye movement, which is processing of the brain. And I've healed through a lot of trauma and crazy okay. stuff through that. So the other part of it is I don't I don't want the listeners to think that if they're not doing two hours a day, they're not doing Oh yeah. You're right. You know? You know? Yeah. No, it doesn't matter. Actually, TM used to say back in the day when regular people started meditating, 20 minutes twice a day. The right. school That's that right. I um, study with says 30 minutes twice a day. And um, people seem to be, you know, there's a woman named Sarah Lazar who's at Mass General Hospital. And I haven't looked at her work lately, but I know that she was trying to determine what the optimal time was um, for meditation. Hmm. And I think I think that would be really great to know because I hate to see, you know, there's a lot that needs to be attended to in the course right. of the day. So for myself, I would probably be wanting to do that which does the trick and no more because there's so, there's so much else that needs to be attended That's to. That's true. Yeah. I think it feel, it's a matter of what is going to work for every individual. Absolutely. I, I did two hours a day religiously for two years, and now I fluctuate a little bit. But I really love when I get those two hours because I get something deeper. But I also do allow my brain to just do what it wants to do in the beginning and I work through a lot for me personally, and not everybody's brain works the same way. And those of you guys that have been following me for a while, you know that one of my premises is that everybody's brain has a unique way of working. And we have different experiences that wire our brains in certain ways that are unique to us. And for me, working through a lot of the thoughts and ideas, because I have many <laughs> mm -hmm. in that time, that first half hour or so allows me to put less into action, allows me clarity about what I am putting into action. So it saves me a lot of time for me personally. I'm sitting here yep. smiling because <laughs> you didn't ask for my opinion or advice, but I was thinking when your brain is in its like little sandbox or playground or doing whatever it's doing, you know, the brain wanders like 70% of the time. Right. And the building, the building of that muscle has to do with from the minute you sit down, when you see a thought, bringing it back to your breath so that you wouldn't be entertaining those thoughts, even even if they're positive, there's still thoughts. And I was, um, I used to work at Harvard Medical School and I was in the quad. Uh, it's called, it's the green area in the medical school area. And the dean of the medical school came up to me, holy Hannah, what could he possibly have to say to me? I was holding a mindfulness book. And what he said to me was, 
that he said, I'm a fan, you know. And I said, no, I didn't know. And he said, yes, I am a neurologist and I have absolutely no question that meditation alters the structure of the brain. And what they think it does is that I think it um, fortifies some layer of gray matter that so that there are these lower brain firings, all those thoughts you're having, and this thing buffers. And so the more you bring the thoughts back to the mind, back to the breath, when you're having that first half hour of thinking, 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 you're actually building, you're actually changing the structure of your brain. You're building that buffer. What's really nice about that is it doesn't keep the emotional data out of your awareness, but it keeps you in charge of it instead of it in charge of you. Mm-hmm. So, the whole, so the whole idea, as I understood it, and again, there are so many different kinds of meditation. Absolutely. But the idea, as I understand it, is that when you see a thought to bring the mind back to the breath and then there'll be another thought but you know like clouds in the sky we just um, let them go and go back to the breath and that sort of thing so and that doesn't take as long because you're disciplining the brain for either 20 minutes or 30 minutes and supposedly that's enough to do the trick so but that's just one kind of meditation and it may not yeah. be yours or someone else's preference. And then well, and there are all the apps too. So. Of course. It's interesting. One of the things that I do with a lot of, so, a, so some of my clients have a lot of trauma and they can't sit <clears throat> in meditation. It's too much to really focus the brain in that way. And I remember last year at the trauma conference, the I can't remember exactly the studies, what they mm-hmm. said, but basically it said specifically that people that have had a lot of trauma have a really hard time meditating in the yeah. way that most people think of meditating. So one of the things I do with people a lot is just sit still with your eyes closed. That's it. Don't worry about your brain. Don't worry about what's going on because you've got to get there first. You've got to get to that point first. And yeah, two hours is a lot. I don't expect anybody else to do two yeah. hours. I, I hear um, Mr. Rogers used to do two hours before every nope. show. <laughs> yeah. I haven't watched that movie yet about him and I heard it was really good. I heard it was really good too. <laughs> I have to watch that. We have to watch that and talk about it. For for people who don't meditate, so on my website at MadelineMoist.com, there's after, at the top, after I get done carrying on about my new book, if you keep scrolling, you'll see that there's this complimentary exercises box. And there's something in there called power breathing. And you might like, that for your clients, if you're not already using something like that, it's under 30 seconds. And what Mm -hmm. it does is it stimulates the polyvagal nerve, which runs from the lower abdomen, like up through to the brain. Mm -hmm. When you stimulate that nerve, 
it takes you out of, I was going to say, I don't want to get too technical. The truth is I don't know enough to get too technical. So I will keep it really simple. It takes you out of fight or flight in the sympathetic nervous system. And it puts you in the parasympathetic nervous system by doing this particular type of breathing. And so it's calming and you can focus. You're clear headed because you're now. So here's the hand model of the brain. Can you see? Mm -hmm. I can yeah. see. Okay. So this thing is the agitated part of the brain that's firing all those thoughts and feelings at you. Right. And when this is doing that, this is your higher functioning. The higher cortex is knocked offline. So this under 30 seconds, three breaths that take under 30 seconds calms this, makes this nice and calm. So this can come back online and then the higher brain can say to the agitated brain, thank you for sharing. I'll take it from here. So you want, you want the data from here, like car coming, get out of the way kind of data, or even less emergent than that. You want to know, even if it's positive, if it's positive, if it's negative, you want that data, but you, we never want this making decisions for us. This does not get to drive the bus. So we want exactly. this calm. So anyway, that little power breathing exercise is, I, I call it power breathing. It's polyvagal breathing or diaphragmatic breathing, but I call it power breathing because I think it's so powerful. And it's, um, you can use it anywhere, anytime, anyone. Right. And I Are think- Are you it, gonna show us? I'll be happy to. Yeah, do do show us. Gosh, yeah, let's okay. do it. Thank you for asking. Anybody, anybody feeling like they're in a little bit of fight or flight, do it with us. Don't, maybe not if you're driving. I don't know if this is something we can do when we're by driving. By the way, by the way, it's really nice when you're going from one activity to another or one meeting to another, or you, you were out for whatever reason you were out and you're going back into the home where maybe there are children there or whatever. When you have to make a transition like that, this is a perfect thing to do. Three breaths, under 30 seconds, just to get yourself sort of like cleansed to be yeah, really like reset. It is. Okay. So feet I, nice flat on the ground. Oh, my chair is not conducive to this, but I'm making it. Okay, good. Well, I always make a big deal about the posture because I want people to assume the posture of the life they want to lead. So absolutely empowered, right? So, okay. And the top of the head parallel with the sky and the chin tucked in slightly. Now, before we start, what I want you to know is that anxious breathing, which most of us do most of the time for whatever reason, fills the chest with air. This breathing that stimulates the parasympathetic nerve fills the belly with air. So try, everybody try that once. See if you can breathe, not, your shoulders shouldn't even move because your belly's moving. Your belly's gonna go all the way out. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Of course, most people are holding their belly in. So this is a little awkward, but you're filling it like it's a balloon. 
So it's in through the nose and out through the nose and it's belly out on the in-breath because you're filling your belly with air and then the belly goes all the way back in on the out-breath. Okay. So let's just, let's just fall still and take our three breaths and then we'll come back to, into the room. So in through the nose and out through the nose and belly out on the in-breath, belly in on the out-breath. I feel very mellow now. <laughs> Isn't that delicious? Yeah, that's awesome. It it's funny how not breathing, you know, you like don't know when you're not breathing, but there are times where we're not really breathing. And then I take a breath and I'm thinking, oh, my God, that's delicious. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So we have digressed into meditation and breathing and we're going to dip back into identity a little bit. I was thinking today because I knew we were going to talk about this stuff today. And I was thinking about my past identities and my current identities and what are they? And I realized, which feels so juicy, is I don't have a lot of attachment to most of my current identities. I still consider myself an artist. I'm a writer. I'm writing a book. I... I'm an elevation guide, I'm a healer, I'm a friend, but I really, I feel very fluid with all of that. And I also feel like I am not defined by any of it, which is a really big key because one of the things about identity that we, that holds us back is we become defined by our identity. We attach our sense of worth to our identity and mm -hmm. it really can screw with our lives and potentially cost our lives. I think you have a story about that one. I do. You want to share that one? Yeah, well, so because I was studying Advaita Vedanta, pre-Hindu tradition, I got overly identified with being mellow. Mm. So one day I noticed there was something terrible, like terrible pain in my arm. <clears throat> and I went to the ER to a very prestigious, very fine hospital. And um, they sent me home. They made me sit there for hours and then they sent me home of course. and told me that maybe I had bursitis and I remember like standing in the doorway of the examining room while I was being ignored for I don't even know how many hours and like poking my head out and waving and like trying to be really nice. It even says in my medical chart how pleasant I was. I was dying. I was dying of flesh eating disease. And no wow. one was yeah, no one was paying attention to me because I was, you know, pleasant. 
I didn't look like there was anything wrong with me. I was, they say the hallmark of um, necrotizing fasciitis, that's the big word for it, is pain out of proportion to anything that can be seen. So nobody knows how much pain you're in. And then you're me overly attached to my composure, my identity right. of composure. So they sent me home twice because I went back in, because they had, they had drawn in ink on my arm. And they said, if the redness goes down to there, come back. So I went back and then they um, chastised me for not getting my prescription filled. And I said, well, it was two in the morning in a bad neighborhood. Where was I going to, oh, and I had asked for uh, medication that night the, in, in the first place, and they said the uh, cabinets were closed. So I, it's a long story, I'll spare you that. Some of it's in the book, actually. The point, the major, the takeaway lesson for me was exactly what we're talking about here, that I was so like, I should have raised the roof. I should have refused to leave the hospital until they put an IV in. Had they put an IV in, I wouldn't have a mark on me. As it turned out, because it took me three tries to get into the hospital, I spent seven weeks in the hospital, during wow. which time I went to the OR 10 times. I was out of work for six months. <laughs> All because, I swear to you, I believe this is it. All because I was attached to an identity of poise. And poise was inappropriate in that moment. Yep. I mean, this so is a huge one. That poise, especially as women, a lot of us have this identity that we have to be good that we have to be perfect, all of this stuff. And this stuff throws big monkey wrenches in. A lot of it comes from times that maybe we were told that we didn't do something well and we had an emotional state. So it triggers this idea that if we're perfect, they will love me. And it formulates this idea that our worth is behind being perfect. A lot of our identities really stem down to our self-worth. It's interesting. I think back to my life as when I was an artist, a photographer, and I had a lot of self-worth issues. And I tried to really embody that identity as a photographer. I bought the art books. I made sure I had all the equipment. I went into massive debt for equipment that I could have rented. I did all of this stuff trying to get all the pieces together so that somehow I thought if I had all the outside pieces yeah. together, then it would make me the photographer that I wanted to be. So I was actually trying to really embody an identity that I didn't feel like I was worthy of hmm. from the get. 
I knew that I was talented. There was no doubt about that. But I had these beliefs. I had, this was a crazy belief, is I believed that if, I believed that popular people were mean. And so I was really, there was this subconscious part of me that was always fighting being a successful photographer. I guess I was okay with the identity of a photographer, but not a successful photographer because successful, a successful artist means you have to be popular to sell your work and to get recognized. You need to be popular. And this underlying part of me was fighting against that. So I was consciously up because, because why I believed popular people were were fighting against it that you knew that you needed to be popular and you were fighting against it. You said, because. Oh, because I had this subconscious belief that I didn't realize at the time that popular people were mean. And because kindness is one of my core values, my subconscious mind did everything it could to make sure I didn't go against my core values of kindness. And it even made me be mean to people sometimes, which is, you know, if they were popular, if they were popular, I was kind of mean to them because I didn't want to risk the like idea of becoming friends with them. This is why, um, you know, a lot of my friends over the years have been very alternative people because this idea of not wanting to belong, even though I, I consciously, to belong but this subconscious part thought if i really belonged if i really got in with the good kids the popular kids the really good ones then of course it would run the risk of me becoming popular and if i became popular then i would potentially be mean so this is one of my self-sabotaging beliefs that i also wait a minute unaware of yeah would you say that you would be, you would potentially be mean, but also potentially more people would be mean to you? No, I don't you think that was really a part of it for me. No, I didn't worry about that at all. I already assumed people were mean to me. What? I already assumed what? people were mean to me. I, I mean, were, not anymore. Were. This is were. This is old stuff. This is old beliefs that don't really exist in my subconscious anymore. But it was really interesting to see how they played this role of my identity as a, a successful artist, sabotaging I, I, that possibility. I'm fascinated because. Yeah. Because I'm trying to incorporate what you're saying because I have a mindset that's the flip of it. So my mindset is more that, for example, with promoting the book. Right. My mindset is if you're that visible, people can see you and be mean to you. I I never worried that I would become mean, but I did more worry that people could envy if you're successful not that i would become mean if i was successful but someone else might be because that happens sometimes so so 
what you are saying is the other side of that coin. So I'm trying to wrap my head well, around the other side. I'll tell you where it came from. When I was young, when I was little, when I was nine years old, I was really popular in school, in grade school. And this kid, this new girl was at our school. Best friend introduced me to the new girl. I'd only been at the school for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And I was very full of myself in a way, but really what was going on in my subconscious mind, my subconscious mind was like, like, this girl's take Katie, my best friend away from me and do whatever you can to make sure that doesn't happen. This is, you know, that part of the brain you were talking about right here, the emotional yeah, yeah. part that's like yep. fight or flight, make sure yep. this person doesn't take my friend because I had deep, deep insecurities about not feeling loved. What, and what so grade was that? What I grade was, was in that? the, I was in the fourth grade. Okay. So I told, I said to this girl, I looked at her and I said, and it's etched in my memory so strong. I looked at her and I said, to what? You don't know who I am. <laughs> and I turned and walked away. And then the next year in the fifth grade, I moved to California and I was the new kid. And of course the popular kids were mean to me. So my brain said, oh, when I was popular, I was mean because I always felt bad about that. Because again, the value of kindness, those things etch in your mind and they damage yourself. So do you, feel, do you feel that you overshoot now the way I did when I was in the ER, where I was overshooting the kindness? A lot of my life, I think that I did. Absolutely. Not anymore, but I've done a lot to unwind my subconscious and shift it that I don't even think about it, which is great. But I definitely overcompensate as a people pleaser. I did everything I could to I think you're capturing be nice yeah. at a detriment for myself. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And you're really capturing really nicely a central issue that when there's I think Freud called it reaction formation, that when you think there is something bad about you, you try to make yourself, I don't mean you, we, yeah. one, one tries to make oneself into its opposite. And then we overshoot. You made me think of a funny story once. Somebody was mean to me once and I got all huffy about it. Believe it or not, I was a cheerleader for the Philadelphia Eagles for one day. My one mother, day. One day. My mother pulled me off. She didn't want me to do that. She said, nice girls like me didn't do things like that. So, Oh, I identity. Her, yeah. her of what your identity should be. Exactly. So when this person was mean to me, I said, do you have any idea who you just did that to? I was a cheerleader for the and the person said to me, that's exactly why I'm doing it to you. That there was such pleasure in sort of bringing me down. Maybe because, you know, maybe I was too full of myself or something because I was a cheerleader for five minutes. But or, or maybe some cheerleader was mean to them and they got some programming about that in Actually, their subconscious mind. That's that's brilliant. 
that's a really good point. Actually, it was a man and the cheerleaders types were mean to him. Yeah. So, yeah. So you, you hit the nail on the head. All right. So what can we capture here as a useful takeaway? I think it's, um, I think it's about the overshooting and trying to be who we're trying not to be who we might be afraid we are and just maybe watching out for overshooting. What, what, what do okay. you think? Yeah. Well, I mean, for me in my work that I do specifically, cause I work specifically with the subconscious mind, I really look for these moments, these moments where we are the source points of why we would overshoot. So, when I discovered that I was able to go in and heal the work for me around that first incident, incident, which was about needing to be loved and do some healing work around that. And then also that hurt around being treated badly by the popular people. But, you know, these things, these emotional events that we have when we're children, they create these beliefs that translate into behavior that does not always serve us. If you've got your mom saying nice girls aren't going to be cheerleaders on the Philadelphia Eagles and a lot of our programming we pick up from our parents and now you've had to live this life with this identity of being a nice girl. Lots of the women here understand that. Lots of the men here understand that, you know, we have to be strong, tough. Don't talk about your feelings. Don't, you know, all that stoicism. And none of that, those identities don't serve us. They don't give us fluidity to allow that we have to move through our body, which is what we need to not create more triggers. So this just popped into my head. There's a guy, Robert Wright, who wrote The Moral Animal. And that was the first book that I cut my teeth on, after which I became a fanatic about evolutionary psychology and brain science. Robert Wright talks about knobs and tunings. So we all have the same sort of human capacities. Fortunately, we have aggression. If somebody comes after someone we love, we're going to get aggressive about that. Thank God that helped us to survive and to thrive. Mm -hmm. But what he adds to that that is so useful is and I do this with my clients a lot, is we can put our hands on those knobs and regulate that stuff. So that there's a, there's a just to be trite about it, there's a time and a place. Write, <laughs> totally. things, write things right. And if you have, if you know what you got inside of you, and then you're in charge of regulating it, then you know which tool to pull out of the toolkit when and how much to use it and when to use it when it's right. So I probably should have turned my aggression knob up a little bit when I was in the ER. Right. I was stuck. Way, it yeah. was broken. The knob was broken. <laughs> 
Well, and what was it? So here, this is what I'm curious about. What was it about that identity that was so important to you? That identity well, of being I calm. think because there were times when I wasn't. And I had a preference for that kind of grace. Mm. I just, I made a mistake. My mistake was to be that way consistently. To be consistently, you, to be consistently right. composed was a mistake. Were you at all trying to compensate for, like you said earlier, for the times that you weren't composed and full of grace by really structuring yourself so that you were always that way, so that you didn't yes. have the fluidity? I so wanted to slide be, between both. I wanted to be and to appear, because identity is a lot about appearance yeah. to self and others, composed. Yeah. And it was not correct. It was not a correct, it is not a correct way to live. There is a time and a place for all Absolutely. these um, parts of us that are part of our nature. We have them for mm -hmm. a reason. They got us where we are as a species. And we need to know which tool to pull out when. And I got it wrong. Yeah. And just for the record, everybody, it's okay that we get it wrong sometimes. That's right. It is totally okay. That need to be Lesson perfect learned. if you do it right all the yep. time is... Yep. It does not always serve us. Sometimes if we get things right, it's an opportunity for learning and growth. And it doesn't amount to six months out of work and seven weeks in the OR. But as we really start to look at where our identities are disallowing us to be fluid, and be able to really assess the situation Flexible. for what it is. Flexible. Exactly. And we have a lot of things. Sometimes our identity is so firmly set yeah. that we can't even see beyond anything. I mean, we're where when we have triggers because you feel them come up and you're like, they're pushing my buttons. I can't stay with my family for more than two days at a time or they're gonna drive me crazy and I'm gonna jump off a bridge. Don't jump off a bridge. Nobody jump off a bridge unless the bridge is two feet high in a Japanese garden where you're not gonna damage any beautiful plants. Do not jump off a bridge. <laughs> but the triggers are really easy to recognize, especially if you start paying attention to those buttons, those triggers. But the identity, the identity we don't even realize. And we've seen this with so much this last year with politics. These, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, therefore I can't be fluid in my thinking and say, hey, you have a great idea. Hey, you have a great idea. Hey, if we combine these great ideas, we can actually make an even better idea. Everybody is so attached to one or the other. And these identities are not serving the greater good. Mm -hmm. It's too much. This last year, we've really seen 
everything be so much about identity Bol and polarized. so stuck. Yes. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot. It's a lot. All right. We are running towards the end of the hour. So what's one other point of time where identity threw you a big wrench? I'm actually working on that as we speak. Oh, let's talk about it. So I was trained early on as a classically trained psychotherapist. I um, worked initially for a group mental health practice and people would call the practice and ask to see someone and they would assign me. I just sat there and people would send me clients. Mm -hmm. There was no marketing and not only was there no marketing, it's a violation of our ethical code, or it was. It has to be changing now because everyone's doing it. But it was a violation <laughs> of, of our ethics to be marketing yourself. So marketing was a no-no. And then when I went to business school, I could barely sit in the classroom when I had to. I had to take marketing. I. I I'm lucky I passed it. I think it was the only course that I didn't get an A in because I worked I worked really hard for these grades because mm -hmm. my identity is I get good grades. I could not <laughs> stand. And you would think as a psych major that I would have found marketing easy, but no, I hated it. Fast forward, I had this um, call to write a book. Well, I can't be the only person on the planet who knows I wrote a book, right? So I had to swing into all of these self-promoting activities, which make me gag, actually. And so I've been thinking lately, well, the idea was for people to know about it, which people do, and... There's this Amazon thing that people do. So almost everybody is an Amazon bestseller. And because almost everybody is an Amazon bestseller, I figured if this book is not, I, I have to do justice to my baby, the book. So I promoted that and did that. And it came crashing in on me like yesterday or something. This is not who I am. This is not my true nature and that I've always been, my identity is giving, not asking and taking. The one, mm. the one I love is the one who gives in ways that brings a smile to others. And I realize that I want to return to that. And so I have my plan for how I'm going to pivot now to just be there and then all the people who are in my tribe like you are simply people that i love so that's nice. my yeah it's interesting the you know aspect of birthing a book and you know i'm in the process of writing mine and i know 
one of the things it's like you've got to build your social media you've got to do this you've got to do that you've got to do all of this stuff to promote 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 and of course i need to promote my business and all of that stuff so putting all of that marketing stuff out there somebody asked me not that long ago if money were no object like money was not on the table what would you do I said exactly what I'm doing, except I would not write my own marketing copy. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I would write some stuff because I enjoy writing. I really do enjoy writing, but I would not have to deal with all of my stuff every day. What am I going to put on this? Am I going to start a TikTok? How many? Wait, I have to post every day if I'm going to do on TikTok. Am I going to? Oh, YouTube, how do well, I make my YouTube talking. channel bigger? Like I have to comment on everything. Yeah. So you're talking yeah. too about the amount of work involved, but I'm talking yeah. about who I feel I am asking people to uh, take care of me, pay attention to me, all these kinds of things. That is not my true nature. And I feel like I said to myself yesterday or today that I owed that to the book and right. now we're done and now we're done. And now I so, can go back to a more receptive stance for people who want what I have to offer. And um, I know that they don't have to live in meh. They can have great lives and that's right. what I'm devoted to the work. When I sit with my clients now, it is so grounding because it reminds me. I, I look at them and I know you are what I live for to help right. you. Yeah. So here's just a little food for thought. Do you have trouble asking for help? Do you have trouble receiving praise are those things you struggle with i kind of like it i just think when you um put your hands on the dial mm -hmm. i just want to dial it down now okay so i get that it's, you'll see when your book is out <laughs> you'll see it it gets to be a, a the self-promotion Maybe oh, yeah. Maybe I mean, I've done a few Kickstarters where it's like you're constantly reaching out to get people and ask for money. And that was very hard for me back then. It's, it's a little easier now for me to ask. It doesn't mess with my identity as much. All right, we have a couple more minutes. So do you want to tell the people what you're doing, what you have to offer, where to find your book in a couple minutes, and I'll tell people what I have. I'm in the business of making your heart sing, making your dreams come yes. true, getting you from where you are to the great life that you can have. I would love to hear from any and all of you. Uh, my website is MadelaineWeiss.com and all of my social media, I couldn't even get that out of my mouth. All of my social media links are on there. 
as well as a link for the book, which you can find on Amazon. I tried to make it a very friendly, fun, informative book. So I hope you find that. It's, um, it we're live, right? Yeah, we're live. Okay, so 90, it's still 99 cents for the Kindle. And oh, I don't yeah. Know, yeah, so I don't know how much longer that's going to be, but I just wanted to throw that in there. Did I leave anything important out? Or I don't think so. That... And I think I also put links in the description for oh. myself. The only other and, thing is, oh, I, yes. Yeah, I blog post every week. And of course, that's free. And so are the exercises in that complimentary mind management box. So yep. if you go there, help yourself, get on the mailing list. And I would love to see you there. Okay. I think that's good. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And also you guys want to get on that mailing list because she is working on a new course oh. that is going to be really good. So get on the mailing list and get on my mailing list too. <laughs> While I'm at it, self-promotion for me. Um, you guys know that I work with people. I do six months packages where we really address all your self-sabotage. We reprogram that subconscious stuff that is getting in your way, like rewiring that stuff like popular people are mean so that you can actually chase your dreams and go after what you really want. We do a lot of trauma healing and taking the emotional charge out of that stuff. And Thank you so much for coming on today and talking about identity. It's such My a pleasure. big thing. And I really appreciate having you here today. And yeah, any last words for the people? So sometimes people um, ask me, is there one thing? And my answer is always the one thing is good company. And that's one of the Hindu concepts. So good company is not just the people, although it is that too, but it's the books you read, the music you listen to, the food you eat, the wine you drink, and the thoughts in your head, right? Good company Absolutely. in your head. And also the people that you invite into your life, the finest quality that you can find and afford will make a big difference in your life. Be picky. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Good company. Thank you guys for tuning in today and we will see you next time. Thank you. Bye.